Welcome to Pinkie Pod. How's it going out there? Here I am recording on the night of the last supermoon of the year, right? I think it is. And and were they calling it the sturgeon moon? It's funny. doesn't look like a fish. It's not actually dark here yet, but by the actual astronomical timing, shall I say, it hit 100% fullness about 40 minutes ago. It's 7.04 p.m. right now. Now, a few days ago, on the 6th, I attended the Renaissance Festival. Oh, my gosh. Now, if you follow me on any of the social medias, Twitter, PodPinky, my Instagram, Pinky underscore podcast, or Pinky Swear Press, you know, Facebook, other places, you may have seen the photos, jousting, drinking, fire breathing, (laughs) all kinds of cool stuff. Everybody was back. It was a little smaller last year because I think people were still recovering from the whole COVID thing going on financially and otherwise, and maybe we're nervous, but all the vendors and everybody were there. If you are in Seattle, Washington, as I record this, this weekend it's still going on, and the next weekend, check if you see if you can get tickets. It's a blast. It's so much fun. I dressed up, but they had a pirate weekend, a special, so... I had some makeup odds and ends and I had this idea to do half of my face skeletal because I had the ancient Aztec cursed gold medallion, you know, from Pirates of the Caribbean. I thought, well, yeah, you know, like when they're in the moonlight. I was not expecting so many compliments. I It really makes you feel good. I had so many people tell me how cool it looked. I had a person with a really professional looking camera actually ask me to pose for them. I was like, wow. That's cool. So now I want to get good makeup and perfect it. And I've been wanting to do fun stuff for a long time anyway. I just, I don't know. I just haven't. But that definitely boosts your ego, right? So I'm going to perfect it. And I have decided that this character is Captain Barbara Osa. You get it? (laughs) Come on, why not? I have a huge, fabulous hat. (laughs) So I did that. I went to the opera the next day. It was a very lovely, lighthearted opera called The Elixir of Love. It's a it's a newer one, very lovely. And I already told you, I think, about the Highland Games. So it sounds like I've been super busy, but just the things I had planned that I you know, planned from last year kind of came around the same time. So what have you guys been doing? Doing anything fun out there or watching anything new or playing any games? I have just watched through the second time most of it the sandman on netflix isn't it just gorgeous and i have to admit there's a lot of cosplay potential there isn't there who doesn't want to be desire oh they are so hot perfectly cast and someone who hasn't shown up yet but delirium i think delirium is really interesting i don't know could be fun right just play around and that reminds me if you're nervous about doing stuff which I have been in the past because you don't have the money for the costumes or you don't know how to sew or you don't think you have enough of the stuff to make the costume whatever screw that honey just do it do it my loves it's fun it's good for you and ignore the haters and actually you might be surprised how many people are going to tell you how wonderful you are 
And especially if you have any Renaissance festivals around you, you should go to those because that's where people are really lovely. <laughs> I said it. If you're in Seattle, like I said, go to it. It's going for the next two weekends. But let's get to the subject of this podcast, shall we? Do you... All right, here's the papers. Are you ready? Do, 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 do. The Changeling. And I don't mean the one with Angelina Jolie. A 1980 film considered to be supernatural psychological horror. It was directed by Peter Medak. It starred George C. Scott, Trish Vandeveer, and Melvin Douglas. It's about a New York City composer who moves to Seattle and lives in a mansion he discovers is haunted. Now, the script was written by Russell Hunter, and he said he based it off of events of his own time living in the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion in Denver, Colorado, in the Cheeseman Park neighborhood. C-H-E-E-S-M-A-N. If you're in Colorado, let me know. That looks like Cheeseman, could be Chessman. I don't know. Some people consider The Changeling one of the best horror films of all times. So be warned, if you haven't seen it, there's probably going to be spoilers following, okay? But I first want to tell you about the possibly true story behind this fictional film. First off, let's start out with who the heck is Russell Hunter? Well, he was born April 15th, 1929 in Illinois. He died August 25th, 1966 in Denver. He was a writer. He seems to only have two credits for that, you know, no matter where I looked. The Changeling, of course, is one of them. And another one, I will totally butcher this, Odd Leyantequin. I don't know how to say this. I can't even read my own writing. A-A-D-L-I-Y-A-N-T-I-Q-I-M. Leyantequim. <laughs> it's also a supernatural tale from 1988. The IMDP, I, excuse me, IMDP. It, oh, I'm already... There's, I've now run into something I cannot say. IMDB page. Yeah, go ahead. Tell me you can say that even once in a row. It tells me that this story, I think it was also a film. Yes, film was done in Egypt and the language is Arabic, which is really interesting. And the translated title is He Returned for Vengeance. He's also was listed as a playwright and like I said, that's about all I can find out about him from some searches. But let's get to the story of this house he lived in, right? Or the supposed uh, true tales. Very quickly, it goes like this. I have read variously that in late 1968, Russell Hunter moved to Colorado from New York to help his parents manage Three Birches Lodge in Boulder, Colorado. And then I read that he moved very quick, you know, at the same time into the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion near Cheeseman Park, Denver, Colorado. That's the most common beginning. And it was by 1969 that strange things started happening in the house that he rented for a paltry $200 a month. I did verify that his parents ran that lodge, Three Birch Lodge, in the 60s. 
I did read that Russell had worked as a musical arranger for CBS TV in New York City, and I verified that he did help them with the lodge. Uh, presently, by the way, this lodge, part of it or all of it, was moved to the 9600 block of Arapahoe Road and is now in use as a private residence. But let's get back to the, the, the haunting, right? That's what you want. So Russell first started looking for an apartment and not a house. He wanted to live there and work on his music. And then he found this really awesome deal, you know, a full ass house on 1739 East 13th Avenue for $200 a month. So picture February 9, 1969. This is apparently when it all started. Banging and crashing in the house. 6 a.m. every morning. How do you like that for an alarm? Because it would stop the minute his feet touched the floor. You know, so presumably when he's getting out of bed. You know, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey, crash, crash. Then faucets would turn on and off by themselves, doors would open and close, and the walls vibrated, paintings crashed to the floor. Russell apparently even said that he could put your hand on the walls and you could feel it. Eventually, with the help of an architect, Russell found a hidden staircase that was in the back of a closet. It led to a third floor or attic and upon inspection, Russell found a child's trunk. It is said that it held a nine-year-old's school books and journals, and they were over a century old. So that would make them possibly from 1869 or so. This journal told the story of the life of a disabled boy who was kept in isolation, and also he talked about his favorite toy a red rubber ball. A few nights after reading this, a red rubber ball came tumbling down the main staircase in the home. By the way, that is the iconic scene in the movie for a lot of people, and it is often referenced in other movies. And then it seems Russell did, as you do, he held a seance. <laughs> he reached out to some psychics, I guess, and they had a seance. During the seance, he found out that the boy was an heir to his maternal grandfather's fortune. But then he became very ill, and his parents were worried about losing this fortune. They, saw, they thought someone else in the family would get it. After he died, they buried him either in secret in a field southwest of Denver or who knows maybe elsewhere. They went to an orphanage, adopted a look-alike, and trained him to act just like their dead son. Hence, you get the title changeling. And you've heard of those, you've heard of those mythologies, haven't you? I know one of my podcasts, I touched upon that. The idea, older versions of the changeling, the original, if you will, would be fairies maybe come and steal the babies out of you out of their cradles and they are replaced with their own sickly children right you know some of those legends so that's why they called him that this was a totally different child this changeling 
well, you know, actually I had just stopped and think to think to myself that this worked in reverse instead of replacing a healthy baby with a sick one. It went in reverse, kind of crazy, because this boy became well-educated and a successful man, so it is said, and, and presumably healthy. Russell Hunter claimed that the dead son spoke through him at the seance, and he got permission then to excavate beneath the house and found human remains, which is why I made the comment that maybe they didn't bury him somewhere else. He found human remains as well as a gold medallion with the dead boy's name engraved on it. Funny thing, I didn't see the boy's name anywhere. Maybe I didn't look hard enough, but I didn't see it mentioned anywhere. The activity in the house grew violent days after this. Quote from Russell, Glass doors blew up in my face and severed an artery in my wrist. The inner walls over the head of my bed violently imploded. So then he finally did the smart thing. He left. The only time he returned was to view the demolition of the house. That's right, y'all. It's gone. You can't visit it. Sorry. I know some of you were thinking about it. I will post pictures of what it looked like. The lot now is actually home to a high-rise apartment building. I'm sure that people still waltz around there, though, hoping to get some kind of vibe off of it, right? I also want to tell you that he is quoted as saying during the demolition, as the walls of the wing which had contained my bedroom collapsed, they suddenly flew outward and crushed to death the man operating the bulldozer. Huh. So do you think that's true? Do you think it's false? When he left, apparently the apparently these hauntings followed him, by the way, but it was all sorted out by some sort of exorcism cleansing of, you know, where he moved to. <laughs> okay. I'm getting some information from history.denverlibrary.org and Katie Rudolph, who did some deep dives into this. There is no proof that Russell Hunter rented the home. His name is not in phone books, which they did still use at the time for that address. There's no records, no receipts. As I verified and they verified, his parents did run the lodge. Their names are Pearl E. and Russell H. Ellis. Russell Hunter changed his name probably for work. Um, his name change is verified. I guess they found the papers that verify that. And uh, as far as the attic and the trunk and the journals, right, and the disabled boy, well, as far as that plot of land, there was a childless couple, Henry Treat, who was born 1837, died 1922, uh, Henry Treat Rogers, pardon me, who was apparently a very prominent lawyer, and his wife, Kate Rogers, who was born 1865, dude, got you a younger woman there, and died 1931, they filed a permit to build a, quote, brick dwelling, you know, I'm sure, house, July 1892, which doesn't fit the century, but okay, I guess we could be generous and say the years could be off about the journals. But the pictures I've seen of this house so far are not brick. But, you know, we'll get into that. Well, I'll get into it if you come to my social media. 
Again, pinky underscore podcast for the photos. Now this couple, Kate and Henry, did have a niece and nephew who lived there, I guess, with them quite a bit. And we will go more directly to the denverlibrary.org page. So the niece was Frances Clark Ristine, who was born 1881 and died 1934. Man, they all died in the, th- they died in the 30s. That's pretty young. Um, the niece came from Illinois to live with the Rogers when she was 10. And she stayed until her marriage to George Ristine. After living in Chicago several years, Frances and her husband returned to Denver after the death of her uncle, Henry Treat Rogers, and they lived in the 13th Avenue house with Kate, who formally adopted Frances as her daughter around 1927. Frances became a longtime secretary for Denver Orphans Home and the president of Globeville Day Nursery while living in Denver. Then she inherited 1739 East 13th Avenue and a small... (laughs) I don't know if you heard that, but that made me jump. (laughs) A really loud motorcycle. Okay, crotch rocket. (laughs) Where was I? Oh, it gave me a start. Uh, She inherited 1939 East 13th Avenue and a small fortune after the death of Kate, uh, the woman who adopted her. Hang on a second, yes. And Frances died in 1934. So the nephew was uh, Henry Treat Rogers II, actually. Born 1892, died 1918. Oh, very young. Graduated from Yale in 1914. Came to work in his uncle's law firm, which was Rogers Ellison Johnson, around 1916. Now, did anybody else notice that when I read that? Ellis. That's very interesting because um, Russell Hunter's parents' last name was actually Ellis. Okay, it could just be a coincidence, but that's interesting. So Henry Treat Rogers II lived in that house, as we said, but he enlisted in the uh, World War I in 1917, uh, and he never returned. So that's what happened to him. Um, died in 1918, age of 25. So there's conflicting reports about his death, though. Uh, one obituary said that he died from physical exhaustion on August 18th, 1918 in Cincinnati. Another claimed that he died in France from the effects of a nervous strain from the close application of his duties. I assume the war. A memorial fund at Yale was established in his name by his uncle, Henry T. Rogers, the elder. So they, they conclude here by saying that uh, despite what we've learned about the Rogers family, Many other mysteries of the house at 1739 East 13th Avenue remain. And who knows, the answer may dwell within other resources available at Denver Public Library. Um, How they came to these conclusions are that they used genealogy, house history tools available on DPL computers, and also available in the Western History and Genealogy Department. So these are the initial things that they came up with. I then found some more other details elsewhere. Why, pray tell, was the house so cheap to rent? Because no one wanted to live there. It is said that the development the house was built in was built over, can you guess, a former cemetery. Now, one source I read called it Prospect Hill, 
circa 1858 that it was founded and it had first been uh, acquired by the city and they turned it into a park bodies were moved but apparently rather haphazardly so of course this spawned many stories over time but when i googled prospect hill cemetery with the date 1858 i get historic landmark district of columbia but then i found mount prospect cemetery so i think some of the articles got the name off you know there's probably a lot of prospect hills anyway because there's i also found one in omaha nebraska so it's i think it's probably common is that a common cemetery name seems so uh cheeseman park is the park that then that was previously a cemetery mount prospect and kate rudolph again provides us details about this mount prospect cemetery opened on the 160 acre site in 1858 in 1865 40 acres of the cemetery became mount calvary a burial place for catholics in 1872 congress decreed that the site of mount prospect was technically federal land the land was sold to the city of denver with the provision that it would always serve as a cemetery hmm. in 1873 the cemetery became known as denver city cemetery by the 1880s the city of denver was pleading with congress to change the status of the land from cemetery to parkland january 25th 1890 congress acceded to their demands and denver city cemetery became congress park in 1893 the task of moving 5,000 graves began under the management of undertaker e.p mcgovern due to mishandling of the project which includes allegations of dismembering corpses so they could be placed in child-sized coffins McGovern was famously dismissed before all of the graves could be relocated. Denver Mayor Robert W. Speer, a proponent of the City Beautiful movement of the early 1900s, looked to beautify Congress Park, but claimed the city didn't have the funds to do so. So he encouraged benefactors to donate, but didn't have any success until the widow and children of Walter Scott Cheeseman 1838 to 1907 came forward with $100,000 for a park pavilion and now you know where the name originates 1950 city of Denver persuaded the Catholic Archdiocese of Denver to deed the Mount Calvary land back to the city while a city botanic garden was originally planned for the construction in city park it was really relocated on the Mount Calvary site the Denver Botanic Garden was dedicated in 1966. Uh, so, yeah, I think that sounds like a whole lot of setup for some ghosty things, don't you think? Bad idea. Bad idea. In fact, there, as, as early as 2010, 
there were some workers digging trenches uh, for the irrigation system and they came across four skeletons. And I think that if I kept looking into this, I wouldn't be surprised if they had found more. <laughs> but shall we get to the movie? Shall we get to the movie? And then maybe we'll do a little uh, quasi live since you know, you're gonna hear this recorded, but a little quasi uh, Google roulette there just to see about any other ghost, right? Just to see about any other ghosts. We'll think about it, we'll think about it, we'll think about it. But let's get to the actual movie. It premiered at the USA Film Festival in Dallas, Texas, March 26, 1980, released simultaneously in Canada and the United States two days later. It received mostly positive critical reviews, was an early Canadian produced film to have major success, one of the, you know, one of the early ones. It won eight inaugural Genie Awards, is that a Canadian thing, y'all? I'm not going to click and lose the page. Including Best Motion Picture and was nominated for two Saturn Awards. I guess it's now considered a cult film, cult classic, and one of the most influential Canadian films of all time. Now let's see if the plot matches up. John Russell, they took his last name and put it at the end, a composer from New York City, moves to Seattle. Obviously, that's already different. It's not Denver. Who knows why they moved it? following the deaths of his wife and daughter in a traffic accident while having car trouble. Yeah, that's already different, but compelling, right? You immediately are going to have sympathy for him. He views and rents the mansion from an agent of a local historic society, Claire Norman. She tells him that the property has been vacant for 12 years. Not long after moving in, John begins to experience unexplained phenomena, starting with the loud banging every morning, one night he discovers that all of the uh, water taps turned on and he sees an apparition of a drowned boy in a bathtub. Soon after, a red stained glass window pane shatters as he is outside and when he investigates, he finds a locked, boarded up door in a closet hit leading to a hidden attic bedroom. John takes a music box from the mantel. It plays the exact piano tune that he has just recorded downstairs. <laughs> So, so far, it's right there. John and Claire, the historian, investigate the history of the house. And they believe that the ghost is that of a young girl killed outside the house in a traffic accident in 1909. Huh, like his, like his family, right? They have a seance. He overhears the voice of the spirit on audio equipment. But the voice of the spirit calls itself Joseph Carmichael. So John then discovers that Joseph Carmichael was a crippled and sickly six-year-old who was murdered in 1906 by his father, Richard, because he was unlikely to reach the age of 21, upon which he would have inherited an enormous fortune. To ensure the inheritance, Richard replaced the dead boy with one procured from a local orphanage, spirited him away to Europe under the pretense of seeking treatment for his condition. After years away, returns when the boy is 18, claiming that the boy has been cured. Now, this might be what Russell actually said, too. We will check. So then the boy is now an old man, a prominent U.S. senator, who is also a major patron of the historical society that owns the house where his adoptive father committed the murder. <laughs> Except I don't think Russell said anything about murder. John's investigation leads him to a property built on land that was once owned by the Carmichael family where he believes the body of the murdered boy, the real Joseph Carmichael, was dumped in a well. 
he does find the skeleton of a young child with his christening medal. Maybe that's what I was wondering what the gold medallion would be. Is that what it or did they just say that from the movie, right? John attempts to speak to Senator Carmichael, but is restrained. The senator, though, is disturbed to see the medal, as it is identical to one in his possession given to him by his adoptive father. Dun, dun, dun. Society cancels John's lease on the house and fires Claire. Senator Carmichael sends a detective, DeWitt, to John's home in an attempt to intimidate him and retrieve the medal. John refuses, and when DeWitt leaves to obtain a search warrant, his vehicle mysteriously crashes, and he is dead. After DeWitt's death, Senator Carmichael agrees to meet with John. John tells him the story. Carmichael angrily berates John for accusing his adoptive father of murder. John leaves the skeleton's christening medal, along with the only copy of the seance recording, and apologizes. Claire goes to the house to find John is chased by Joseph's wheelchair, empty wheelchair, until she falls down the stairs. When John arrives, the house begins to shake. He tries to appease Joseph's ghost, but falls from the second floor as Joseph's ghost sets the house on fire. At the same time, Senator Carmichael compares the two medals and, when he realizes the truth, falls into a trance staring at the portrait of his adoptive father. John witnesses the senator's astral body climbing the burning stairs to Joseph's room. Claire rescues John while Carmichael witnesses the murder of the boy Joseph and suffers a fatal heart attack. John and Claire then see the senator's body being loaded into an ambulance. The next morning, Joseph's burnt wheelchair sits amid the ruins of the mansion and his music box begins to play a lullaby. <sighs> Doesn't that sound good? Now, what did they say here on Wikipedia about it? They do mention Russell Hunter, of course, uh, inspired by mysterious events that allegedly took place at the Henry Treat Rogers mansion. They, have, they don't say anything more about it than what I told you so far. So while it, it, it was set in Seattle, but they did a lot of scenes in British Columbian cities of Vancouver and Victoria. Yeah, there's nothing new there. They do that all the time. And they had an introductory part that was uh, shot in New York City. They used some Seattle points of interest, SeaTac Airport, University, UW, Washington's Red Square, Space Needle, Rainier Tower, Rainier Tower, and Lacey V. Murrell Memorial Bridge. I think those, I think some of those things have been renamed. Of course, this was a 1980 film. They have the uh, interior college scenes were shot at uh, UW. Pretty cool. The historical society was Vancouver's historic Hotel Europe. The senator's home was Hatley Castle on the grounds of Royal Roads Military College, which is now Royal Roads University in Victoria. Exterior shots of the haunted home were filmed using a facade which was erected in front of an existing home in South Vancouver. The interior of the haunted mansion was a series of interconnected sets at Panorama Studios in West Vancouver. Apparently, Peter Medak, that I told you was the director, was the third one who was hired for the project. Before him came Donald Camel and Tony Richardson, who both withdrew due to creative differences. Medak was hired with only a month to facilitate 
script rewrites and set construction. That is a lot of pressure, yo. Now, do you want to know what the critic of all critics said, Roger, Roger Ebert? If it only took craftsmanship to make a haunted house movie, The Changeling would be a great one. It has all the technical requirements, beginning with the haunted house itself. The film does have some interesting ideas, but it doesn't have that sneaky sense of awful things about to happen. Scott makes the hero so rational, normal, and self-possessed that we never feel he's in real danger. We go through this movie with too much confidence. And Edwin Miller of Seventeen wrote that it was visually classy, chiller, aided by stunning filming locations. Richard Grenier of the Cosmopolitan praised Medak's direction, but added, it is Scott, using the full range of his immense talent, who gives the story its spine-tingling impact, and he deemed it the best horror film of the year. Variety also praised the film, calling it a superior haunted house thriller. You know, you, it runs the gamut here. Somebody from Pittsburgh Press called it uh, an unexceptional but diverting horror story with better than average performers. <laughs> and then someone else calls it the best ghost story of the year and called Medak's direction brilliant. So, yeah, it goes all over, goes all over the place. Now, the Genie Award, yes, they are Canadian Film Awards. There we go. It won all of these. Best Foreign Actor, George C. Scott. Foreign Actress, Trish Vandeveer. Best Adapted Screenplay, William Gray and Diana Maddox. Best Art Design, Trevor Williams. Best Cinematography, John Coquillion. Best Sound, Joe Grimaldi, Austin Grimaldi, uh, Dino Piggott, okay, Carl Scherer. And Best Sound Editing, Patrick Drummond, Dennis Drummond, and Robert Grieve. And it has been listed number four on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Director Martin Scorsese placed The Changeling on his list of 11 scariest horror films of all time. Well, I mean, if Scorsese likes it. <laughs> also has quite the soundtrack, 24 tracks, two discs. Oh, pardon me. There's quite a pardon. Pardon me. Pardon me. Pardon me. So, uh, yeah, quite a few accolades here. You know. Roger didn't always like everything. We can't begrudge him that. That's why we liked him. Now, shall we do the Google roulette? By the way, y'all, I also found an old picture of the Three Birches Lodge. And it was written with the, new, the number three, not spelled out. It's from the 1950s. I found it on Reddit. Thank you, Reddit user. Reddit user TBBD. <laughs> it was posted only a, a year ago, so... Legit. And that's where I got some information to follow through to the Denver Library, the stuff about CBS TV from user Boinzy, B-O-I-N-Z-Y. I'm trying to give credit here for everybody. Boinzy is also the one who uh, talked about the lodge being moved to the 9600 9 block of Arapaho. Says uh, starts right after 95th. And they assume it goes all the way to 287. Uh, they've got pictures. I might share those links. Somebody has uh, talks about postcards that have it. So that's pretty cool. Somebody else with some other details that may or may not be true. Because now we're going to see if there's other mentions of haunted stuff, hauntings going on in Cheeseman Park, Denver. So I have come up first with hauntedrooms.com. 
the haunted Cheeseman Park. It is a popular spot for tourists and local families alike, and it's easy to see why. 80 acres of beautiful lush green park nestled in an urban setting bordered on three sides by private homes. So that helps give you maybe a visual too. I should post a picture of that also on my Instagram of where the houses could have been situated. They get the name of the cemetery right also, Mount Prospect. People consider it Colorado's most haunted place, at least according to this, and one of the most haunted graveyards in the country. 1858, General William Larimer arrived in what is now Denver and claimed the land from the Arapaho Indians. Little history there. That's where they get the street names. November, General Larimer designated around 320 acres of land to be used as Mount Prospect Cemetery. And we already went through. There are some good pictures here. Here we go. He wanted, I guess, a little extra info on that history. The most influential residents of Denver to be buried there. That was his intention. They would be buried, I should say, on the crest of the hill, while the criminals and the poor were to be buried at the edges. And ordinary middle-class folks would be laid to rest in the space between. So how do you like that? Even in death, we've got a cased system. Wow. One of the first people buried in Mount Prospect was convicted murderer John Stolfill and his victim, who was his brother-in-law. Dun-dun-dun. As Hungarian immigrants, the men were buried with little ceremony. Both corpses were dumped into the same grave. <laughs> a growing number of criminals, murder victims, and the poor were buried in the cemetery, and it became known locally as Old Boneyard or Boot Hill. This was far removed from what Larimer had intended, and he was embarrassed by the unseemly reputation, so he renamed this burial ground City Cemetery. Now, this, this is hauntedrooms.com. The new name did nothing to help the cemetery, which was quickly falling into disrepair. Tombstones were falling over, prairie dogs freely burrowed into the ground, and cattle grazed between the graves. How lovely. Affluent families, of course, no longer wanted any part of this, and they took their dead elsewhere. It was left to the criminals, paupers, and transients. 1874, City Hall gave notice that anyone who cared should make arrangements to remove the remains of their loved ones and have them reburied elsewhere within 90 days. Now, this is clearly a very different bit of detail than what was at the Denver Library website, and I would be much more inclined to listen to the perhaps not quite as scintillating details from the Dem Denver Library page, okay? <laughs> I... I I don't know, or maybe they didn't want to put in this part about here, take your loved ones elsewhere, and they were only sticking to the facts, because they do mention what the bigger facts are about the 5,000 corpses. So I guess it could be true. I don't know. I'm just giving you a caveat. I don't know. Some were reburied, but over 5,000 corpses were abandoned and unclaimed, is what this says. 1893, the city made arrangements with a local undertaker of ill repute to remove the bodies and rebury them in Riverside Cemetery. It was not a well-paid deal. The work was sloppy. The caskets were only 3.5 feet by one foot. So that's, the, that's what they were saying on the other page about possibly chopping up. Well, those were that was a factual page, pardon me, uh, chopping up corpses and trying to fit them in the child's coffins. So... They repeat that here. 
Now, here's one that would be a rumor. One local woman apparently warned the workers to utter a prayer over each body on earth or the dead may return, but they laughed her in the face and sent her away. Yeah, we're setting that up for a good ghost story. There were rumors that some of the workmen uh, stooped so low as to loot the coffins and even stole the brass nameplates. Maybe, right? Maybe. The number of actual reburials taking place and being charged to the city did not seem to tally up with the number of boxes of remains being delivered to Riverside Cemetery, according to this. An investigation was launched, and the result was that the removal of the bodies was never completed. So that lines up. The holes were filled in, and the bodies are still there under the park's surface. Does Chisman Park. Chisman? I keep changing it. I don't know why. It's just me. What can I say? Does it have ghosts? Tales of paranormal activity here, there, here, there, everywhere date back to when the bodies were being removed. One of the workmen, a man named Jim Astor, walked off the job after his brush with the paranormal. He had been stealing brass from the old coffins to sell for scrap when he suddenly felt an ice-cold pressure settling around his shoulders. He was convinced that one of the dead had come to chastise him for his thievery. He was so terrified that he threw down his pilfered brass and ran from the cemetery, and he refused to return to work the next day. Around the same time, people who lived in residences surrounding the graveyard began to report strange occurrences. It is said that sad and confused-looking figures would knock on their doors and windows. Having been disturbed by the desecration of their graves, of course they were confused, right? Many reports of disembodied moaning and anguished cries came from the open graves in the cemetery during the exhumation work. It's said today the spirits still have not managed to find rest. There are frequent reports from visitors and nearby residents of paranormal activity in Cheeseman Park, both in the daytime and night. Many visitors have described feeling sad for no reason or dread. I know that feeling. It's a really weird feeling. And it definitely seems out of place because it's a park and it's, you know, supposed to be fun and beautiful. Other visitors say they hear hundreds of whispering voices and moans echoing around the park, similar to what the residents reported hearing when the graves were dug up. One of the common sightings involves the spirits of little children who are often seen playing in different areas of park in the dead of night, but they will just poof vanish disappear if you get too close it also happens with a female spirit who frequents the park people have seen her singing heard her singing as she wanders in the park but she just vanishes when people get close there's also sightings of mists strange mist shadowy figures in the trees and the outlines of old headstones can sometimes be seen in the moonlight One of the strangest phenomena that has been reported is that many visitors to the park experience an odd sensation if they lay down on the grass, almost as if someone or something unseen is holding them down. They say that after lying down for a little while, they feel as though they cannot stand up. Residents who live in the homes that border the park say they experience strange occurrences in their home ranging from shadow figures and poltergeist activity uh, to confused wandering spirits reported by residents back in the 1890s when the bodies were exhumed. There is a spirit called Slackjaw. So one eyewitness account 
of a meeting with Slackjaw describes a male entity as pale, thin, with a broken jaw, dressed in a blood-soaked, torn hospital gown. The witness thought it was a living person when he approached, and this person was asking for a cigarette. He then proceeded to ask if people had seen them and, lifting the hospital gown, showed serious stab wounds before indicating that he was looking for the men responsible. When the witness asked if he was supposed to be in the hospital, the man replied that they threw him out because he didn't have any money to pay for the treatment. And then the guy disappeared and the, and the witness realized he'd been speaking to a ghost. It is said that Slackjaw roams the park every night in search of his killers. What do you think? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I don't know. But, I mean, it would be pretty creepy to... This is not the only park that I've ever heard of that had cemetery close or underneath it. In fact, I feel like I've mentioned them once or twice on uh, another episode. Now we'll go to legendsofamerica.com. The first man buried was actually Abraham Kay, according to this, who died after being suddenly stricken with a lung infection. Buried March 20, 1859. But the most often told story is of that of a, of a man hanged for murder. The second man buried was the Hungarian immigrant John Stoffel, though. The name is correct. He arrived in Denver to allegedly settle a dispute with his brother-in-law, shot him April 7, 1859. Both of them were gold prospectors, and witnesses thought that Stoffel was really there because he wanted his brother-in-law's gold dust. The nearest official court was in Leavenworth, Kansas, which I'm familiar with. A people's court was assembled, and Stoffel was convicted of murder. April 9, 1859, he was hanged from a cottonwood tree at the intersection of 10th and Cherry Creek Streets. Though Denver at the time consisted of only 150 buildings, about 1,000 spectators attended the Stoffel hanging. Afterward, his body, along with his brothers, were dumped into the same grave at the edge of the cemetery. So the other page had a true story, but they made them the first ones. Because it's not as much fun if there's a second for the ghost stories, I guess. This verifies that the outmost edge of the cemetery was filled with outlaws, vagrants, and paupers. And they did call it Old Boneyard and Boot Hill. It gained another nickname, though, when a popular professional gambler named Jack O'Neill was gunned down outside of a saloon in March 1860. The entire event began when O'Neill, a handsome Irish man, quarreled with a less-than-credible man who went by the name of Rooker. As the argument progressed, O'Neill suggested the two settle the argument with bowie knives in the back room. Meet me in the back room with a knife. However, Rooker refused. So O'Neill questioned his heritage as well as that of several of his family members. I'm sure he didn't say it very politely. A couple of days later, Rooker, apparently still pissed off, shot O'Neill down as he passed by the door of the Western Saloon. When the Rocky Mountain News printed the story, the cemetery also became known as Jack O'Neill's Ranch. This is all during the time that that original guy, Larimer, right, had started and it was just not getting the respect that he wanted. All of this was happening. It was claimed, a little extra detail here, when, when Larimer left by a cabinet maker named John Wally. That's the aspiring undertaker. So 
a report from 1866 states that 626 persons buried were buried in the cemetery. But Wally did an extremely bad job of keeping up the cemetery, and that's why it fell into disrepair. disrepair. The, with, the, with the toppled headstones, as I mentioned, graves were vandalized. And they mentioned the cattle. Some legends even claim that homesteaders began to live on the land. Over time, separate areas of the cemetery were designated for various religions. I mentioned, I think, the Catholic section. There were organizational sections and ethnic groups such as Odd Fellows, Society of Masons, Roman Catholics, Jewish, the Grand Army of the Republic, and a faraway segregated section for Chinese near the pauper's graves. Some of the sections were well kept up by family descendants or organizations, but others were terribly neglected. Uh, wow, there's, they've got quite a bit of, of uh, crazy details here. 1875, 20 acres at the north were sold to the Hebrew Burial Society. They maintained it, maintained it, and I guess they kept it very nicely. 1881, a hospital, quotes, hospital for those suffering from smallpox was established just south of the Jewish cemetery. It was more often referred to as a pest house. Smallpox victims were quarantined along with others having contagious diseases and some that were just merely sick, elderly, or handicapped. Most, quote, patients were simply left there to die. Behind the building was Potter's Field section of the graveyard, where a vast majority of the dead were buried in mass graves. I mean, this is all just, yeah. It sounds like a very unsettled area. I could believe that there would be some bad juju still hanging around there, bad mojo, bad energy. I can totally believe that. This does actually verify another website or uh, that families were given 90 days to remove remains of their departed to other locations. So they first told the families, you might want to move your people. And those who could afford to do it did so. But a large, uh, there were a large number of graves in that Roman Catholic section. So Mayor Bates sold that 40-acre area to the archdiocese. And that's when they called it Mount Calvary Cemetery. I told you that. Sorry. The Chinese section was placed in the hands of a large population of Chinese who lived in, quote, Hop Alley section of Denver. Those bodies, a majority, were actually shipped, uh, removed and shipped to the homeland of China. But because a lot of them were in the cemetery were vagrants, criminals, and paupers, a lot of them remained unclaimed. So the undertaker who botched the whole thing, did I mention this, was E.P. McGovern. Little more detail on that. He was supposed to provide, right, a fresh box for each body. It was supposed to be $1.90 each. He started doing this March 14th, 1893. And there were actually people, you know, and reporters, they were curious and they were watching. So while they were watching, I mean, at first it was completely orderly and everything was as it should be. But then McGovern found a way to make a profit. Instead of using the full-size coffins, that's why he used child-size caskets and hacked the bodies up. Sometimes he would use as many as three caskets for one body. In their haste, body parts and bones were strewn everywhere, and in the disorganized mess, souvenir hunters began to loot open graves and coffins. They actually have a headline in the Denver Republican, March 19, 1893. The work of the ghouls 
And the article does describe McGovern's practice in detail of hacking up what were sometimes intact remains of dead and stuffing them into undersized boxes. Quote, the line of desecrated graves at the southern boundary of the cemetery sickened and horrified everybody by the appearance they presented. Around their edges were piled broken coffins, rent and tattered shrouds, and fragments of clothing that had been torn from the dead bodies. All were trampled into the ground by the footsteps of the grave diggers like rejected junk. The health commissioner began an investigation into the matter, and as a result, Mayor Rogers terminated the contract. You think? Afterwards, the city built a temporary wooden fence around the cemetery, leaving it in shambles with open holes still displayed. Though there were actually also numerous graves that had not yet been dug up, but along with the exposed ones. And a new contract for moving these bodies was never, ever awarded. So in 1894, when grading and leveling began in preparation for the park, several of the graves wouldn't, still wouldn't be filled in 19, till 1902. And shrubs were planted in many of those. So, y'all, I think the shrubs probably can speak to you. I bet that essence went right up in there. Praise be. And they're going to be like, you'll be sitting by a shrub. Anybody in Cal Colorado, Denver, you vouch for this. You've been sitting by the shrubs. And they're like, psst, you're standing on my foot. 1923 is when the bodies from the Hebrew burial ground were removed to other sites. And the cemetery then returned to the city. The section that was the Chinese cemetery was used as the city tree and shrub nursery until 1930. And then later it was converted to an addition for Congress Park. 1950, Catholic Church moved their remains. Told you about that. And now you have Denver Botanical Gardens. Present day Cheeseman Park uh, was mostly the Protestant portion of the old cemetery. And a residential community separates Cheeseman from Con Congress Park. I am definitely going to have to pull up the pictures. It is estimated that 2,000 bodies still remain buried in the park. This does verify what the other website said. When the bodies were being removed, strange things immediately began to happen. That grave digger Jim Astor, who was looting the graves, yeah, the ghost touched him, he got in trouble, and he didn't come back to work. The people in the residence didn't just see spirits, but they said that they were knocking on their doors. Restless spirits are still said to occupy the park. P children at night. Old graves can still be seen. Yep, this is all, this is all backs it up. I know I have somebody, Tina, I don't know if you're listening to the podcast, but I have uh, somebody who lives in Denver on my Facebook, and I'm curious, what do you know about Cheeseman Park? You ever been there? You heard these stories. So there you have it. I think maybe I should stop because we could just Google forever. Started out with the uh, story of the changeling and we end up with the, the haunted cemetery I think was more interesting and sad and sad and terrible. And yeah, really sad. It's just so disrespectful and gross. And you just know that that story is not uncommon. There's stories like that in New Orleans. There's stories like that. That would be a famous one. Uh, they, all over the place. I, I can't remember which of my podcasts it was, but I'm telling you, I know. It happened in other places. I felt like The Changeling was also a book that I'd read, but uh, now I'm not finding it. When you Google or bing, 
this, by the way, everything, even if you put in Russell Hunter's names, it's the house, it's the origins. And it just doesn't seem to have any verification for him, though, whether or not this was true. And we can't ask him because he's not around. Why don't you guys let me know, pinkyswearpress.com, sroyt at pinkyswearpress.com, if you have any stories or if you know any stories about Denver. I mean, like, if you want to tell me your own stories and I'll share them. But if you're around Denver or if you've been there and visited this, I would be interested to hear about it. Or if you have some more information about Russell Hunter and this house, other than the same thing that everybody just repeats from everybody on the internet, let me know. Let me know. I think that's it. I need to listen to this and see how bad it is and how much I have to cut out of it. If I come up with anything cool, I'll tack it on the end. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter, PodPinky. Find me on Instagram, Pinky underscore podcast. Go to my website, PinkySwearPress.com. I have all the things. I have my books. I have my, you know, photography blog. I have a Facebook. Find me wherever. Hit me up. Say hi. And let me know if you like anything I do. Poop. Poop out. Oh, yeah. And don't play with any red rubber balls, I guess, because, you know, I don't know. Beware if you see one. I have an addendum to when I said Russell Hunter died. I realized I somehow said 1966. 1996. Okay, bye-bye.